0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Welcome to the 2022 Russell Kirk Lecture, Natural Law and the Recovery of Human Freedom, Please welcome Richard Reinsch, Director of
0: the Heritage Foundation's B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies.
2: Welcome to the 2022 Russell Kirk Lecture um, to be delivered by Robert George on the natural law and recovery of human freedom. I know that we are in store for an intellectual feast this afternoon Uh, before introducing Uh, Robert George, I'd like to say a few words about our namesake, Russell Kirk, and his connection to the natural law and some of his writings. Uh, The natural law is a perfect subject for the Russell Kirk Lecture Series, as Kirk's writings bear the mark of a man searching for and articulating the essence and the reality of the truths that serve as the foundation of ethics, law, and culture. I don't exaggerate in making the claim that Russell Kirk's writings and contributions made American conservatism into a remarkable and intellectually coherent assemblage of thinkers, writers, journalists, academics, and activists. His primary focus, though, was not on policy and politics, even though he did serve for a while as a speechwriter to Barry Goldwater. He was an intellectual historian who dwelt on the moral and ethical roots of conservatism, which he prominently found in the later work of Edmund Burke In The Conservative Mind, Kirk's 1953 book, that made it impossible for conservatives to continue to deride uh, the conservative movement as just irritable mental gestures, he explores the thought of Edmund Burke and ends with T.S. Eliot. Along the way, he connects us to John Adams, to James Fenimore Cooper, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Walter Scott, Alexis de Tocqueville, Abraham Lincoln, and many, many more. Russell Kirk did not claim to find in these thinkers a grand unifying theme, but the thread of timeless truths of moral order, freedom, the transcendent, virtue, especially the virtue of prudence, along with custom and prescription and other conservative principles. Conservatism, Kirk always maintained, was the negation of ideology. American conservatism's purpose was to conserve our constitutional tradition and the moral and ethical order that it depended on. American historian Force MacDonald once referred to Kirk as, quote, the American Cicero, because he wrote about what endures rather than the ephemeral and what is morally obligatory rather than the latest intellectual fad. Regarding the natural law, the focus of our being here today, Kirk observed in a lecture delivered here at Heritage titled The Illusion of Human Rights, that natural law is, quote, the justice conceived as being the higher or ultimate law, proceeding from the nature of the universe, from the being of God and the reason of man, end quote. This time, I'd like to invite Professor George onto the stage. Robert George is McCormick, Professor of Jurisprudence, and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He is also a member of the Board of Directors here at Heritage. He has served as Chairman of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom and before that on the President's Council on Bioethics. And as a Presidential appointee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is a former Judicial Fellow at the Supreme Court of the United States where he received the Justice Tom C. Clark Award. Professor George is the author of numerous books and essays and articles on a range of subjects, including uh, the natural law, marriage, anthropology, and morality. Uh, His books, uh, some of them, Making Men Moral, Civil Liberties and Public Morality, Oxford Press, In Defense of Natural Law, Oxford Press, 1999, The Clash of Orthodoxies, ISI Books, and What is Marriage, Man and Woman, A Defense, which he co-authored with Sharif Gurgis and Ryan Anderson. He has received numerous awards and honors from an array of institutions, and in looking at all of them, I think what they signify is that in devoting his life to teaching and writing, Professor George has had an immeasurable impact on his students and on many other academics and writers. He is foremost in his defense of the integrity of the human person, the essential reality of marriage, the dignity of conscience, and I know he is going to give us much to think about today on the natural law and freedom. After Professor George speaks, he'll be joined by our president, Kevin Roberts, on stage for a moderated discussion, and we'll also take questions from our audience. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Richard. Well, it's always a pleasure uh, to be back at the uh, Heritage Foundation, and it's an honor to serve on the board alongside the great Ed Fulner and so many other uh, fine people and uh, what an honor it is to give a lecture named for uh, Russell Kirk one of the towering figures of the conservative tradition uh, someone who deserves his status precisely because he was such a great defender of the permanent things the things that really matter there are some things that matter money and power and influence and status You can use those things for good things, but they're not good in themselves. They're not what ultimately matters. Kirk devoted himself to the defense of what ultimately matters, faith, friendship, family, honor, integrity, the things that really matter. Abraham Lincoln began his remarks at Gettysburg in 1863 by noting that the nation he served and was fighting a civil war to preserve, was founded four score and seven years ago. As the great Hadley Arcus has observed, if one does the arithmetic, this takes us back not to the ratification convention, or the ratification of the Constitution in uh, 1788, or its adoption by the Constitutional Convention in 1787, but to the signing and publishing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. In this matter, as in so many others, Lincoln's understanding was very much in line with the understanding of the nation's founders. They too believed that with the Declaration they established a new nation, albeit one whose political institutions and fundamental law were changed in significant ways by the Constitution and then by its amendments. Lincoln observed that the nation they founded was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. This natural law understanding of the American founding and the American regime is once again something Lincoln held in common with the founders themselves. As the Declaration proclaims, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was on this basis that Lincoln, that America's founding statesmen launched their experiment in ordered liberty. The experiment that would, as Lincoln said at Gettysburg, test whether a true regime of Republican government can long endure. And whether government of the people by the people and for the people, that is to say Republican government, would survive, not only on the North American continent, but on the earth itself. Will it perish from the earth? So the experiment, our founder's experiment, was a bold one. Yet Thomas Jefferson, the principal draftsman of the Declaration, had insisted that there was nothing novel about the natural law philosophy that he and his colleagues had set forth in their document as the basis of Republican liberty in the new nation. Reflecting on the Declaration in May of 1825, a little more than a year before his death and the death of his revolutionary colleague, then political foe, then friend John Adams, a little more than a year later on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration, Jefferson said in a letter to Henry Lee that the point of the document, the Declaration, was, and I quote, not to find out new principles or new arguments never before thought of, nor merely to say things that had never been said before, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject. It was intended to be an expression of the American mind and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. All its authority rests on the harmonizing sentiments of the day whether expressed in conversations, in letters, in printed essays, or in the elementary books of political right as Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, etc. end quote. Now it goes without saying that Jefferson, a learned man, was aware that in a vast range of particulars, Aristotle's approach to practical reason and moral and political theory, differs from Cicero's approach, which in turn, of course, differs from Locke's and so on. So it would obviously be erroneous to interpret Jefferson as claiming that the United States of America was founded on a particular natural law theory that was common to the four figures in the history of political philosophy he mentioned in a non-exhaustive list. The claim, rather, I believe, is that the, quote, American mind that produced the Declaration and the harmonizing sentiments of the day that prompted the bold and dangerous decision to rebel against the British Crown, the greatest military power on earth, were deeply informed by the broad tradition of reflection about moral truth and its relationship to political order that includes Greek philosophers and Roman jurists of antiquity, the true founders of the natural law tradition we might say, and continues through the great Christian thinkers of the medieval period and the Enlightenment thinkers of the Founders' own time. Now, one's knowledge of natural law, like all knowledge, begins with experience. But it does not end or even tarry there. Knowing is an activity, an intellectual activity to be sure, but an activity nonetheless. We all have the experience of knowing. But to know is not merely to experience. Knowing is a complex and dynamic activity. The role of experience in the activity of knowing is to supply data on which the inquiring intellect, the mind, works in the cause of achieving insight, understanding. Insights, then, are insights into data. They are, as the philosophical theologian Bernard Lonergan brilliantly demonstrated by inviting readers simply to observe and reflect on their own intellectual operations, the fruit of a dynamic and integrated process of experiencing, understanding, and judging. So what are the data supplied by experience that are at the foundations of our practical judgments? Practical in Aristotle's sense, that is, reasoning with a view to action. What constitutes, in other words, the basic principles, the most fundamental foundations of natural law? Well, these are the objects of intelligibly choice-worthy possibilities, possibilities that in as much as they provide reasons for acting of a certain sort, that is more than merely instrumental reasons, we grasp not simply as bare opportunities, you could do this, but as, uh, not simply as uh, bare um, uh, possibilities, I should say, you can do this, but rather as opportunities, things that are worth doing. So, in our experience of friendship, for example, just to take one, one very familiar example we're all we're all know about, we grasp what is ordinarily by an effortless ex- exercise of exercise of practical reason. We grasp the intelligible point of having or being a friend. We understand that friendship is desirable not merely for instrumental reasons. Indeed, a purely instrumental friendship would be no friendship at all, wouldn't it? But above all, for its own sake, you're only in a friendship if the friends are valuing each other for the sake of the other, for the sake of the friendship. They're treating their relationship as intrinsically and not merely instrumentally valuable. They're not merely using each other for extrinsic ends. Because we grasp the intelligible point of having and being a friend, and we understand that the fundamental point of friendship is friendship itself and certainly not goals extrinsic to friendship, to which the activity of friendship is merely a means, we reasonably judge that friendship is intrinsically valuable. We know that friendship, in other words, is a constitutive, irreducible aspect of our well-being and fulfillment as human beings. And that precisely as such, friendship provides a reason of the sort that requires for its intelligibility no further or deeper reason or sub-rational motivating factor to which it is a means. And the same is true if we shift our focus to our experience of knowing, the activity of knowing, the very thing that we're engaged in here, trying to understand things. In our experience of wonder and curiosity, of raising questions and devising strategies for obtaining correct answers, of executing those strategies by carrying out lines of inquiry, of achieving insights, we grasp ordinarily again by an effortless process the intelligible point of searching for truth and finding it. We understand that knowledge, though it may have tremendous instrumental value, enable us to build bridges and defend ourselves militarily and get the job done here and there. Nevertheless, we understand its most fundamental value as its intrinsic value to be attentive, informed, thoughtful, clear headed, careful, critical and judicious in one's thinking, is to be inherently enriched in a key dimension of human life. We reasonably judge the activity of knowing then to be like friendship, an intrinsic or what some philosophers call a basic human good, an irreducible aspect of our flourishing as human beings. So knowledge of those principles of practical reasoning, those first precepts of natural law, That knowledge is not innate. It does not swing free of experience or of the data provided by experience. Even when it is easily achieved, practical knowledge, knowledge of natural law, is an achievement. It's the fruit of insights, which like all insights, are insights into data, data which are supplied by experience, the experience of having and being a friend, the experience of pursuing knowledge and getting an insight, understanding something that one didn't understand before engaging in the uh, process of inquiry. Apart from these experiences, there would be no data on which practical reason could work to yield understanding of the intelligible point and thus the value of friendship or knowledge and the judgment that these activities are intrinsic fulfillments of the human person just as such and thus are the first principles of practical reason and basic precepts of natural law. Now, it's important to understand that not all practical knowledge, knowledge directed to action, is strictly speaking moral knowledge. That is, knowledge of moral norms and their correct applications. Though all moral knowledge is practical knowledge. All moral knowledge is knowledge that guides action. Yet knowledge of the most fundamental practical principles those directing our actions toward what is intrinsically fulfilling for human beings and away from the privations of those goods, though not strictly speaking, moral knowledge, is foundational to the generation and identification of moral norms. That's because moral norms are principles that guide our actions in line with the primary practical principles, those first principles of natural law, conceived altogether, that is, integrally Conceived, And that's true whether we're talking about principles of personal morality or whether we're talking about principles of political morality. In other words, it's true of a principle like, don't hit your sister, just as it's true of a principle like, do justice, avoid injustice. Norms of morality, then, at any level, are specifications of the integral directiveness or prescriptivity of the various aspects of human well-being and fulfillment that together constitute the ideal of integral human flourishing. So if the first principle of practical reason is, as Aquinas says, that the good, bonum, is to be done and pursued, and the privations of the good, the bad, malum, is to be avoided, then the first principle of morality could be formulated along the lines of one ought always to choose that option that uh, will be consistent with a will toward integral human fulfillment. And that might not be a single option. There may be several options consistent with a will to integral human fulfillment, leaving us with a morally available set of choices, even if some choices are ruled out. So morality doesn't, just to take a question of personal morality, morality doesn't preclude one being a doctor uh, or a car salesman uh, or a think tank scholar. It does exclude one being a bank robber. And just as the first principle of practical reason is specified by identifying the various irreducible aspects of human well-being and fulfillment, friendship, knowledge, aesthetic appreciation, skillful performance, getting in a right relationship with God, other things. So too, the first principle of morality is specified by identifying the norms of conduct that are entailed by an open-hearted love of the human good. That is the good of human persons, the good instantiated in human persons, taken, again, integrally. That is taken as a whole. Now, a natural law theory will propose to identify principles of right action, moral principles, including principles pertaining to human freedom. And among these principles are respect for rights, above all, natural rights, what our founders called unalienable rights, what are often today called human rights, uh, even if Russell Kirk criticized the idea. That is to say, rights people possess, not in virtue of some special quality about them or achievement, height, weight, intelligence, race, sociability, but simply in virtue of their humanity. Rights which, as a matter of justice, others are bound to respect. And governments are bound not only to respect, but to the extent possible, also to protect. Natural law theorists, unlike utilitarians for example, understand that human fulfillment, the human good, is variegated. There are many irreducible dimensions of human well-being and they can be pursued in a morally upright way by countless numbers of people in countless different ways. And respect for people's freedom to do that is itself a moral requirement. It is itself a specification of the integral requirements of the human good. Now, to say that is not to deny that human nature is determinate. All natural law thinkers, from antiquity to the present, uh, everyone in the tradition, understands that there's a determinate human nature. If there weren't, there could be no natural law. It is to affirm, rather, that our nature, though determinate, is complex. We are animals, biological creatures, but we are also rational, unlike brute animals. Our integral good uh, includes not only our bodily well-being, but also our intellectual, moral, and spiritual well-being. We are individuals. We come packaged as uh, units of one, but friendship and sociability are constitutive aspects of our flourishing. That's why someone like Kirk can talk about friendship and marriage and family as among the permanent things. Those relationships, the relationship of true friends, the relationship of husband and wife, relationship of parents and child and grandparents and so forth, are not simply instrumental relationships. People are not simply using each other. They are inherently fulfilled, intrinsically enriched by those relationships themselves. So by reflecting on the basic goods of human nature, especially those immediately pertaining to social and political life, natural law theorists propose to arrive at a sound understanding of principles of justice, including those principles of justice pertaining to freedom and the legitimate limitations of freedom, and arrive at a sound understanding of what we call natural or as people today refer to it, human rights. Now, in light of what I've already said about how natural law theorists understand human nature and the human good, it should be no surprise to learn that natural law theorists typically reject both atomistic individualism and collectivism. While the dignity of the human person is paramount in natural law thinking, we never sacrifice the individual for the good of the collectivity, Radical forms of individualism, which should not be confused with conservative views about individual liberty, overlook the intrinsic value of human sociability. They reduce friendship and other forms of human sociability, even family relations, to the status of mere instrumental values, viewing all relationships as mere means by which the partners collaborate with a view to more fully or efficiently achieving their individual goals and objectives. Collectivism, on the other hand, in any form, compromises the dignity of human beings by instrumentalizing and subordinating them and their well-being to the interests of larger social units, the community, the state, the Volk, the fatherland, the Fuhrer, the future communist utopia. They are of the right and the left, these various forms of collectivism, but they all commit the same mortal sin, subordinating the good of the person to the larger social unit. Now, radical individualists and collectivists both have theories of justice and human rights, but they are, as I see it in any case, highly unsatisfactory. They are rooted in important misunderstandings of the human good, and neither can do justice to the concept of a human person, that is, a rational animal who is a locus of intrinsic value and to such an end in himself who may never legitimately be treated or treat himself as a mere means, but whose well-being intrinsically includes relationships with others and membership in communities beginning with the family, in which he or she has, as a matter of justice, both rights and responsibilities. Natural rights, human rights, including rights to basic freedoms exist or obtain, if it's the case, that there are principles of practical reason directing us to act or abstain from acting in certain ways out of respect for the well-being and dignity of persons whose legitimate interests may be affected by what we do. Now, I certainly believe that there are such principles. They cannot be overridden by considerations of utility. At a very general level, they direct us, in Kant's famous phrase, to treat human beings always as ends and never as means only. You remember that from your philosophy classes, that, cate- that uh, formulation of the categorical imperative. Treat humanity, whether in the person of yourself or another, always as an end and never as a means only. Well, when we specify that general norm, we identify important negative duties The most obvious example, the easiest one, is the duty to refrain from enslaving people, treating other people as if they're property, rather than as if they're persons, which is what they are. Now, although we need not put the matter in terms of rights, we could translate it into a different language. It's perfectly reasonable, and I believe helpful, to speak, for example, of a right against being enslaved, and to speak of slavery as a violation of human rights. So while I heed Marianne, Glendon's warning not to inflate rights talk or to turn every moral proposition into a proposition about rights. Some moral norms can't be captured in that language. I nevertheless think that rights is a legitimate, rights talk is a legitimate and useful practice, that we can and should speak legitimately of basic human rights. These are, again, rights people have, not by virtue of being a member of a certain race or sex or class or ethnic group, but simply by virtue of our humanity. But, and here's where things get interesting, especially on the international stage, in addition to negative duties and their corresponding rights, there are, we all recognize, certain positive duties. And these, too, can be articulated and discussed in the language of rights, though... Here, it is important to be especially careful because we need to be clear about by whom and how a given so-called positive right is to be honored. Sometimes, for example, it's said that education or healthcare is a human right. Those claims are much more often made on the left than on the right, and often and always when they come from the left, in my experience, These claims amount to substantive endorsements of policies driven by collectivist ideologies. The more or less subtle insinuation is that if something is a right, then it's the duty of government to provide it. Conservatives are therefore rightly leery of such talk. It's talk that appears, however in Catholic social thought and other conservative traditions, and of course, in international documents to which the United States has signed on. And it can, if one is careful, I believe, be detached from collectivist ideologies and policies. But to do that, certain questions must be asked and asked consistently and never allowed to fade off the stage. Who is supposed to provide education and health care to whom? Who should control it, make decisions about what counts as health care in contested cases? What counts as education and not indoctrination? And then why should those persons or those institutions be the providers rather than other persons or other institutions? What place should the provision of education or health care occupy on a list of social and political priorities? Is it better for education and health care to be provided by governments under socialized systems, as typically claimed by the left, or by private markets, private providers in markets? What does the principle of justice, and it is a core principle of justice, a central and stringent principle of justice known as subsidiarity, famously formulated and insisted upon in Catholic social thought, require? When you're talking about positive rights, the question of subsidiarity has to be front and center. And these questions go beyond the application of moral principles. They require prudential judgments in light of the contingent circumstances people face in a given society at a given point in time. And often, there is not a single uniquely correct answer. There are different morally legitimate ways of doing things. Just societies can handle them in different ways, just as people can be doctors or lawyers or think tank scholars or car salesmen. The answer to each question, each of those questions I asked, can lead to further questions, and the problems can be extremely complex, far more complex than the issue of slavery, for example, where once, once a right has been identified and its universality and the basic terms of its application uh, are out there, The result, the conclusion, is fairly clear. Everybody has a moral right not to be enslaved. If you're a person, you're not property. You have basic liberties. You have basic rights. And everybody has an obligation as a matter of strict justice to refrain from enslaving other people, even if they have the raw power to do it. Governments have a moral obligation to respect and protect the right and correspondingly to enforce the obligation. Now, what I've said so far should provide a pretty good idea of how I think we ought to go about identifying what are human rights. But in each case, the argument must be made. And in many cases, there will be complexities to the argument. One basic human right that almost all natural law theorists would say belong, it belongs in the set of human rights, natural rights, unalienable rights, God-given rights, is the right of an innocent person not to be directly killed, that is to have his death be the precise object of your act, whether you are another individual or you are an agency of the state. It is this right that grounds the norms historically associated with the natural law tradition against targeting non-combatants, even in justified wars, against elective abortion, euthanasia, the eugenic killing of handicapped people, and other forms of homicide. If there is a core human rights principle, it's the one prohibiting the direct killing of innocent human beings. Now, the natural law understanding of human rights I'm sketching today is connected with a particular account of human dignity, and I owe you some words about that account. Under it, the natural human capacities for reason and freedom are fundamental to the dignity of human beings, the dignity protected by natural rights or human rights. The basic goods of human nature are those of a rational creature, a creature who, unless impaired or prevented from doing so, naturally develops and exercises capacities for deliberation, judgment, and choice. These capacities are God-like, albeit, of course, in a limited way. In fact, from the theological vantage point, They constitute a certain sharing, limited to be sure, but real, in divine power. This is what is meant. It seems to me it's the only thing that can be meant by the otherwise extraordinarily puzzling biblical teaching that human beings, man, is made in the very image and likeness of God. After all, that teaching cannot mean that God has five fingers on each of two hands and hair on his head and a nose what's godlike about us is precisely our power to act freely on the basis of reasons we have for action to conceive a state of affairs that does not obtain understand the intelligible point the value the worth to bringing that state of affairs into existence and then to act not on impulse or instinct like a brute animal but freely for reasons to bring that state of affairs into existence. It's what God himself does, of course, prior to the creation of man in the Genesis story. But whether or not one recognizes biblical authority or even believes in a personal God, it's true and understandable by anyone, simply by natural reason, that human beings possess a power traditionally ascribed to divinity, namely genuine agency, the power of an agent to cause what the agent is not, strictly speaking, caused to cause. That's the power I described, envisaging a state of affairs that's worth bringing into being and then acting on the reasons provided to bring it into being. Now, of course, a further question will present itself to the mind of anyone who recognizes the godlikeness of our capacities for rationality and freedom, capacities that are immaterial, and thus one can say spiritual in nature. The question is whether beings capable of such powers could exist apart from a divine source and ground of their being. So one finds in the affirmation of these powers a ground for the rejection of materialism, quite a decisive ground for the rejection of that, and one discerns the basis of an openness to and even the roots of an argument for theism, for non-contingent reality. But more on that point in a moment. Now, what about the authority for this view of human nature, the human good, human dignity, and human rights and freedoms? Well, natural law theorists are interested in the intelligible reasons people have for their choices and actions. It's all about identifying, understanding, grasping reasons. We're particularly interested in reasons that can be identified without appeal to any authority, apart from the authority of reason itself. Now this is not to deny that it is often reasonable to recognize and submit to religious or certain forms of secular, for example, legal authority in deciding what to do and not do, whether to stop at this stop sign or not, for example. Indeed, natural law theorists have made important contributions to understanding why and how people can sometimes be morally bound to submit to and be guided in their actions by authority of various types. But even here, the special concern of natural law theorists is with the reasons people have for recognizing and honoring claims to authority. We do not simply appeal to authority to justify authority. Now, one might then ask whether human beings are in fact rational in anything more than an instrumental sense. Can we discern intelligible reasons for human choices and actions? Well, everybody recognizes that some ends or purposes pursued through human action are intelligible, at least in so far as they provide means to other ends. For example, people work to earn money, and they're doing so is perfectly rational. Money is uh, necessary means to a great many important ends. You literally can't live without it. So no one doubts its instrumental value. The question is whether some ends or purposes are intelligible as providing more than merely instrumental reasons. Are there, in fact, as I've been presupposing and asserting, intrinsic as well as instrumental goods? Well, your hardcore skeptic denies that there are intelligible ends or purposes that make possible rationally motivated action. And natural law theorists, by contrast, hold that friendship, knowledge, critical aesthetic appreciation, and other ends or purposes are intrinsically valuable. They're choice-worthy not simply as means to other ends, but as ends in themselves, and they can't be reduced merely to their... um, uh, value in uh, satisfying our desires or emotions or feelings or other subrational motivating factors. These are the goods constitutive of our nature. Finally, again, to the question of God and religious faith and natural law theory. As soon as you bring up the concept of natural law, lots of skeptics, mostly on the progressive side of things, who have forgotten what Martin Luther King says about natural law every time his subject matter turns to justice. For example, in the letter from Birmingham Jail, where he distinguishes a just from an unjust law precisely on the ground that a just law is in conformity with the natural law and the eternal law. And an unjust law is a law that's out of conformity. But lay that aside. The minute you raise the question of natural law, you invoke the idea of natural law, Some people, especially on the progressive side, will say, you are illegitimately bringing religion into this. Natural law is a religion-based argument and so forth. So let me conclude by addressing that. It's true that most natural law theorists are theists. There are some who aren't, but most are. They believe, we believe, I believe, that the moral order, like every other order in human affairs, is what it is because God creates and sustains it as such. In accounting for the intelligibility of the creative order, natural law theorists infer the existence of a free and creative intelligence, a personal God, a non-contingent ground of contingent reality. Indeed, natural law theorists typically argue that God's creative free choice provides the only ultimately satisfactory account of the existence of the intelligibilities humans grasp in every domain of inquiry, whether it's philosophy or whether it's the natural sciences or it's the social sciences or the humanities or mathematics or what have you. Now, natural law theorists do not deny that God can reveal moral truths, and most, all Christian and Jewish natural law theorists, for example, believe that God has chosen to reveal many such truths. However, natural law theorists also affirm that many moral truths, including some that are revealed, can also be grasped by ethical reflection apart from revelation. They assert, with no less an authority than St. Paul, that there is a law, as Paul says, written on the hearts even of the Gentiles who do not know the law of Moses, a law the knowledge of which is sufficient for moral accountability. So the basic norms against murder and theft, for example, though revealed in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are knowable even apart from God's special revelation. The natural law can be known by us, and we can conform our conduct to its terms by virtue of our natural human capacities for deliberation, judgment, and choice. The absence of a divine source of the natural law would be a puzzling thing, just as the absence of a divine source of any and every other intelligible order in human experience would be a puzzling thing An atheist's puzzlement might well cause him to reconsider the idea that there is no divine source of the order we perceive and understand in the universe, whether it's the moral order or the natural order or the logical order. But it's far less likely, I think, to cause someone to conclude that our perception is illusory or that our understanding is a sham, though that is certainly possible. Finally, can natural law, assuming that there are true principles of natural law, provide some measure of common moral and even political ground for people who do not agree on the existence or the nature of God and the role of God in human affairs? Well, in my view, anybody of whatever faith or someone who is secular who acknowledges the human capacities for reason and freedom has conclusive grounds for affirming human dignity and Basic human rights. These grounds remain in place whether or not one adverts to the question is there a divine source of the moral order whose tenets we discern in inquiry regarding natural law and natural rights? Now, I myself happen to think the answer to that question is yes, and that we should be open to the possibility that God has revealed himself in ways that reinforce and supplement what we can know by unaided reason. It is, it seems to me, true that in our fallen condition we perceive moral truths, but often through a glass very darkly, and that revelation can shine a spotlight on what was obscure and enable us to see it clearly, just as natural law thinking can often illuminate and make intelligible what are otherwise obscure teachings of scriptural uh, revelation so yes i happen to think god has revealed himself and it's a darn good thing that he has because we can't know all that we need to know by reason as much as i think we can know but we do not need agreement on the answer to the question how can it be the case that human beings have reason and freedom and therefore dignity so long as we agree about the truths that give rise to the question namely that human beings possessing the literally godlike, indeed literally awesome, for once we can use that word correctly, awesome powers of reason and freedom are bearers of a profound dignity that is protected by certain basic human rights, including those fundamental freedoms that Jefferson and his colleagues acknowledged and wrote into our Declaration of Independence. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Robbie, that was fantastic. I'm tempted to say it was awesome, but (laughs) I will not say that. So we have some time for questions. I'll start with one, and then we'll go to our audience colleagues who get cued on how to do that in just a moment. But my question is really about the point on which you concluded, and, and, and the follow-up is have we gotten in the public square too far gone in our ability to talk about natural law for the political left and the political right in the United States to even see that in spite of your very persuasive answer to your own question as common ground on which to advance good policy?
1: Well, Kevin, I think there is common ground between conservatives, at least those conservatives who, uh, and not all conservatives, of course, fit under this description. I've those, noticed that. Those conservatives who do believe in principles of, of natural law and natural rights, and uh, what I like to call old-school liberals, uh, those who uh, are supportive of a much larger role for government in uh, uh, public affairs than conservatives, characteristically, are interested in but who do believe in the principle of human dignity and do understand that human dignity is grounded in our unique capacities for reason and freedom and who understand therefore that civil liberty is important. This is not the woke left. The woke left has lost its sense of the kind of dignity human beings have that undergird principles of civil liberty. So they will run over basic civil libertarian principles, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, participation, they'll run over them in the stampede to achieve what they regard as social justice. Now, what the philosophical grounds are of that conception of social justice, I have no idea. But that's a question evidently you're not allowed to ask. And in any event, if you do ask it, you're never going to get an answer to it. But yes, I do think we still have common ground between Most conservatives, because most conservatives are believers in natural law and natural rights, and old-school liberals.
0: Quick follow-up question, although it's big. Are our American institutions, whether they be private or public, still equipped to cultivate a citizenry that understands what you just said?
1: Well, our institutions, like uh, so much about uh, contemporary society, uh, have decayed. Uh, But where there is decay, there is always the possibility of renewal, and I don't think we should ever give up on that possibility or abandon it. Uh, It's our job uh, to renew. Um, The founders launched an experiment in ordered liberty and Republican government. Uh, Experiments by definition can fail. The founders themselves knew that it wasn't a sure bet, but they also knew that there was no machinery that they could put in place that would guarantee it to last as long as possible. That it would always take each new generation renewing its commitment and renewing those institutions and reforming what has gone wrong in order to keep the experiment going. So we don't have a guarantee of success. We're not like those on the progressive side that think history's moving toward uh, future utopia. It could all be lost, but let's not let it be lost on our watch, which means we need to be about the
0: business of reform and renewal of our institutions. Thanks for your optimism. We'll go to a couple questions, if you would, two, two rules. The first is wait for the microphone, and secondly, please state your very brief statement in the form of a question. <laughs> will come right down here. Yes, sir. Microphone is right behind you, sir. Thank you. Um, Justice Salzona, Catholic American, conservative, Christian nationalist, in that order. <laughs> um, my question is this. Uh, um, now that we uh, have uh, overturned uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, what would you advise uh, Christian conservative activists s- such as myself, um, especially those of us who don't have a whole lot of money, Um, What would you advise us, uh, other than pray, to uh, get the uh, gay marriage decisions of 2013 and 2015, gay marriage, civil unions, marriage, whatever, uh, overturned?
1: Well, thank you for the question. Uh, We still of course have a lot to do on the pro-life front. And that's so important to the very core idea of human dignity. Uh, If human dignity obtains, if it exists, if there is such a thing, if there's something that corresponds to that phrase, human dignity, then it has to be the case that our dignity as human beings is inherent. And if it's inherent, we've all got it. It comes with our humanity. And if we've all got it, we've all got it equally. So in the pro-life struggle, which we can now engage in, in the democratic forum um, openly, and fully in the way we couldn't prior to the demise of Roe versus Wade, we really need to be about the business of working for the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family, including, of course, the precious child in the womb and caring for the mother who very often is in need and under pressure from boyfriends and husbands and families and employers and economic circumstances and so forth. So we've got a lot of work to do there. Roe versus Wade simply, I'm sorry, Dobbs against uh, Jackson Women's Health overturning Roe vs. Wade simply returns that issue to the Democratic Forum. Now we have to do our work there. But, I think Justice Thomas is right. This is very controversial to say. Justice Thomas in his uh, concurring opinion in Dobbs, and no one joined him in this, uh, but I believe he was right in saying that in exposing as fallacious and rejecting the doctrine of substantive due process which is the principle on which Roe existed, Roe was built, the court has also undermined the authority of its other substantive due process decisions, including Obergefell, the decision that uh, uh, redefined uh, marriage for the entire nation. So uh, there's an opening there. Now the other justices have uh, been at pains to say That's not the issue, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, But I think what Justice Thomas says is true as a logical matter. There is no longer, with Roe gone, and gone because substantive due process is a corrupt doctrine, with Roe gone and substantive due process now exposed for the fallacy that it is, uh, there is no solid constitutional basis for some of these other uh, decisions. Now, that does not include, by the way, loving against Virginia. The left has been claiming that it does. That's not true. Loving is not a substantive due process decision. It's an equal uh, protection
0: uh, decision. But it is true for Obergefell. We're going to work in one more question. Yes, ma'am. Middle of this section here. Microphone's coming your direction.
2: Uh, Diana Furch, Scott Roth, Harnish Foundations. Great to see you, Robbie. Thanks so much for coming.
1: World classmates from Swarthmore.
2: And Oxford, too, yeah. So uh, here's my question. You talked about natural law coming from reason. Well, what if, say, we're one of the Aztecs, and we think that our reason tells us that natural law involves child sacrifice? Or, for example, if I was one of your colleagues at Princeton, and I believed it was okay to kill a baby soon after it was born because it has no consciousness of its own existence. Uh, then you have the application of reason leading to something that's very much against what we think of natural law.
1: Well, that's certainly true, but then we sit down and have an argument. So we've agreed that there's a moral truth, good, that gets us somewhere. Now the question is, what is the moral truth? So in uh, my discussions, let's say, with my colleague, this is a real-life case, as Diana knows, my colleague Peter Singer uh, at Princeton University, who believes not only in abortion but also in the morality of infanticide. Uh, And he would say to me, uh, Robbie, well, you know, you and I agree that what gives human beings special standing and status and dignity is our capacities for deliberation, judgment, and choice, our rational capacities. But unborn babies don't have those, and newborn babies don't have those. You don't develop even a sense of yourself as separate from your, your mother until many months, maybe a year, maybe more, Uh, after after birth, and so that's how he would justify uh, infanticide. Not just abortion, but infanticide as a practice. Well, first I would say, Peter, you're absolutely right, and please tell all our colleagues that if you accept abortion, you've got to accept infanticide, logically. (laughs) Let them know that so they're in on this secret between us. It is true, he's logically correct, that the argument for abortion will give you infanticide. So now the question becomes, is he right that human dignity requires the immediately exercisable capacities for deliberation, judgment, and choice? The alternative is that human dignity requires the radical, that is to say root, the Latin root, capacity, uh, capacities for deliberation, judgment, and choice, which are of course uh, in place from the earliest embryonic stage, from the point at which you have the formation of a new individual member of the human species. And that is indeed from the point at which a child is, is conceived. Uh, if it's the latter, the, the radical capacities, then of course not only is infanticide wrong, but elective abortion, that is abortion where there's no threat uh, to the uh, to the mo- no physical grave, physical threat to the mother. Uh, elective abortion would be morally impermissible and the rights of the child should be protected, which is, of course, my, uh, my position. If it's the former, if Peter's right that it has to be the immediately exercisable capacities, then that would mean that a person who was in a coma uh, would not have that capacity. A person under anesthesia would not have that capacity. So if we killed the person while the person was under anesthesia, we wouldn't be killing a person. We'd be killing a human being who's not a person. Mm -hmm. Professor Singer obviously recognizes, and again, uh, he has been kind enough here to inform his pro-choice friends that of course you have a human being from the very beginning. You have a human being well before birth. Of course abortion kills a human being. Professor Singer is under no illusions about when life begins. He and I agree about that. (laughs) Uh, he just thinks you can distinguish human being from persons. Some human beings are persons, but not all human beings are persons. Some human beings are not yet persons. The unborn, the newborn. Some human beings are no longer persons. People suffering from Alzheimer's disease or other dementias. Some human beings, those uh, born with uh, uh, and, uh, con- con- uh, severe cognitive disabilities, aren't now and never will be, uh, never were uh, uh, persons. Um, so yes, you've got human beings, um, the question is, are they persons? If they need the immediately exercisable capacity for deliberation and judgment and choice to be persons and therefore to have dignity, then you wouldn't be killing a person. You wouldn't be doing anything wrong to that individual. You wouldn't be committing an injustice against that individual. If you killed somebody in a coma or for that matter, someone in a deep, sleep, so it can't be the immediately exercisable capacities. What is the only alternative? The radical capacities that we all possess and never lose, even in the case of a severely congenitally cognitively disabled person. That person doesn't have and won't have, a normal unborn child will develop the immediately exercisable capacities from the root capacities, from the radical capacities but a severely congenitally cognitively disabled person won't. But that person still possesses the radical capacities and you can see that's the case if you simply imagine that a new therapy were developed or a miracle occurred that corrected the congenital, let's say, genetic defect. Would you, in that case, by applying that therapy or in virtue of that miracle, be changing that being from one kind of being into another kind of being. The way miraculously teaching a horse to talk would change that creature from one kind of thing into whatever we would recognize him as. We wouldn't recognize him any longer properly as a horse if he was a talking horse, if Mr. Ed from our childhood uh, actually uh, actually existed. But if you were correcting that defect in let's say a, a cognitively disabled child you would not be changing that child from one sort of thing, a human being, into another sort of thing. You would rather be perfecting him precisely as the kind of thing he is. That is a human being, a, a, a creature organized for deliberation, judgment, and choice, even if, due to the disability, something was
0: blocking the full realization of those capacities. A-plus, Professor. So. There's no doubt the Republic would be better off if all of us in this room and those watching on TV and online would listen to you for another hour. But the reality is this is the Imperial City and the Heritage Foundation, which has a lot of colleagues sitting in this audience, has to get back to work. <laughs> and you're on the board so you appreciate that. That's a way of saying before I invite our friend Richard Reinch up for some closing thoughts. That's right, Richard, I didn't make that up, did I? No, you're not, okay, good. I'm the absent-minded professor, not you. Two closing thoughts then. The first is, and I mean this genuinely, if we emulate two things about you, this republic will be better off. The precision of your thinking and your ability to articulate that. And secondly, and to me, this is perhaps even more important, the generosity of your spirit, which you personify not just here, but on social media especially, and particularly with people who disagree with you. Thank you.